This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Content is more than Revit families. If it's digital, Avail can handle it. Learn more at getavail.com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have conversations with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the coevolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Doris Sung. Doris is principal of Dosu Studio Architecture, co-founder of TBM Designs, and director of undergraduate programs at USC's School of Architecture. In this episode, which is a little bit different take on technology and architecture, we discuss Doris's research and entrepreneurial forays into smart materials, and more specifically, her work with thermal bimetal for various uses, her journey creating building products that don't require electrical or mechanical infrastructure, teaching in architecture and the upcoming USC undergraduate degree for entrepreneurialism, and even after all that, we come to the fleeting conclusion, if you can call it that, that there is still so much to do. So without further ado, I bring you Doris Sung. Doris, welcome to the podcast. Great to meet you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So I think the last time that I saw you speak, it's been a couple of times. I'm not super clear because anything that happened pre-pandemic is kind of an ancient, blurry history to me. But it was Monterey Design Conference is the one I I remember most clearly. And you presented your bimetal facade systems. And I would just love to kind of get into, you know, this this podcast is about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. And I don't think that we've actually had like a facade building product kind of slant on that before. It's mostly around software, things like that, the tools that people use, not necessarily building science, sustainability, material science and research and all those things. So I'm excited to have this conversation today because it's kind of a new arena for the for the podcast. Wow, that's I, I guess in some ways that's uh, a little sad considering our industry architecture is all about hard technology, right? It's about yes, building it technology and building those things. So I guess that's great. It it is. It is great because we're setting a high bar here because it, like this is a research driven process and and building material that you You've gone into to the deepest level, so I'm excited to talk about that today. Maybe you could start off and, and give the audience an idea of where you've come from, how you've gotten to where you are today, and kind of this journey, because I'm sure it's, you probably never saw all of this coming, right? Like, it's just, you've, you, you've just kind of, kind of, you can easily connect the dots looking backwards, but looking forward, it would have been fairly impossible. Oh, yeah. Um, looking backwards, it's, it's definitely very clear. I guess what I'll first explain is what the technology is now. So people have an idea of where um, the, the area that we're talking about. Um, but what I do is I use a, a smart material, um, which basically by calling it smart, it means something that actually reacts to the environment and does so without the use of energy or controls, without electricity, without computer um, information and con- connection. But what it is, is it's, a th- it's called the thermal bimetal. 
Um, there's many different types of thermal bimetals, uh, but what it is is it's a lamination of two different metals together with uh, different coefficients of expansion. So when they're laminated, one side expands faster and more than the other, and the result is a curl. So it's a material that's typically used in thermostats, everything from old residential um, commercial thermostats to machinery and thermostats in those. Um, because they're small and just uses actuators, um, we don't ever see it actually in large um, quantities or amounts. Um, but my big proposal, and it started probably about 2007, was to use it in a massive surface level for architecture. Um, the thing that made it really interesting to me was that it's a material that can react to different temperature swings in our our world's normal range, anywhere between you know 50 degrees to 120 degrees. And so by doing so, I think it was something that I could make respond to the changing environment on a daily level, on a seasonal level, and with the intention on a future level relative to climate change. So I use those things in different types of technologies um, from facade shading to ventilating to um, systems that are about uh, construction, self-assembly, or um, simple or simplified assembly and also in self-propulsion or um, energy generation. So in a very wide range of applications. Wow. I, I think the example that you showed was really kind of in that self-shading application where it was a building facade kind of assembly, and there was a bunch of these sheets of metal that I guess are laser cut or whatever and, and, and attached to a frame. And as the temperature swings, these are like like you said it's a curling process that either exposes more of the facade below or shades it from direct sun and i thought it was it is amazing because it doesn't take all of the extra infrastructure that any mechanical or electrical you know you don't have to any of that stuff there it's just purely relying on the metal itself so it's interesting now to hear that it you've you've gone beyond that to ventilation to propulsion to all these other things. So it seems like there's there's a lot of possibilities with a pretty like you said this this process has been around for a long time. It's just kind of the application and the scale of it is much different now. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people ask me, "Well, why do you just keep working with thermal bimetal?" And it's exactly what you say. Is every time I finish a project, I think of a new thing to do with it because nothing has been done in that area. Um, and I keep continuing doing so, although I do have other projects that are going on as well. But yeah, from there, from that project, which I um, we, we finished in 2011 and was about shading and ventilating, um, led to other um, different types of inventions. Um, one of them is now, although it took a lot of years, is a self-shading window system. Um, we call that Invert, and we have a, a startup company surrounded up around that. Um, it was patented and now is finally uh, commercially available. So it's actually kind of great because it's, it, you know, it's the idea is trying to get in our buildings to save energy ultimately. On one hand, it's both the actuating system as well as the um, reactive system or the responsive system. It's both the trigger that makes it happen as well as the item that will allow shading to happen. And so in the case of these window systems, we're able to, through a lot of testing, determine that we could save about 30% of air conditioning during different parts of the summer, that really is a big deal on a very passive level. So exactly what you say too, it requires no wiring. The, the installation of it is exactly similar to uh, installing any kind of glass. Um, and we do it in a weirdly low tech way. 
<laughs> and so is it is it in between panes of glass then it's actually built into the window unit itself exactly so we put it inside the cavity of a standard ig or insulated glass unit by doing so it, it's protected and so it never needs any kind of maintenance ever you don't have to dust it yeah <laughs> it's, it's sealed right. nobody can tamper with it um, and it's actually kind of an ingenious way because a lot of people, at least um, the public, don't realize that there is a cavity there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, you start to focus on this in-between space. And, and the result is, I mean, the side benefits are great because it's turning out that a lot of people feel like they're like, you know, I mean, they flicker like butterflies. Mm-hmm. When they kind of snap into play, into position. Yeah. yeah. And so they all have independent um, movements to it. They do it independently, so they don't all uniformly turn over at the very same time. There's probably a range of like 15, 20 minutes that they just flicker over. And it's actually a wonderful, phenomenal moment. Even even I still, to this very day, enjoy watching it um, as they actually operate. That's fascinating. I remember watching those kind of time-lapse videos that you showed of the out the facade shading. And to watch that happen, it was kind of mesmerizing. And I could imagine it just never gets old. And it brings like this layer of whimsy and, and curiosity to the building. And because we're so used to just experiencing static architecture, right? And so for, for there to be a level of dynamic change on the facade of the building or in the window systems, it's just got to be something that connects somebody a little bit more to the place, I would imagine, which is great for architecture, right? Well, it's it's a whole new area for architecture. So it's funny that you say that because that's um, some of the current uh, research that I'm doing as well. One of the things that we would do in our office just for fun is we'd make these little critters and they would self-propel and they'd roll and they'd tumble and they'd pop and do all kinds of things. And We'd even name them. They'd be so cute, even. And at first, when we made them, I never thought, oh, gosh, how is this ever going to inform architecture? It's just this complete whimsy thing on the side. But then I realized, like what you're saying, too, is once we can animate things and we can make things happen, people get very emotionally tied to these things. And so then I realized it's like, wow, if we can do that, then we can actually do it positively and, and make, you know, I mean, be about joy making. And if we do that, then we can get into the business of improving mental health, not only for the inside occupants, which I think is obvious, but my current goal is actually to do it for everyone on the exterior to really try to use building facades for uh, public health purposes, in this case, public mental health. And if we could even make people smile or laugh or chuckle or, you know, I mean, even think about these things and enjoy walking um, along this building or near it. To me, that really makes a big difference for for the public. And why can't we do that with buildings? So many projects are like the boundary of the property line defines the effect of the building as far as the project team is concerned. But I think as architects and kind of stewards of the built environment, we understand that a building has a much larger impact on the community. And I think with the kind of things that you're talking about with this type of a building material and, and the effects that it has... It's easy to see how that can affect beyond the boundaries of the project. You know, if it's a if it's a campus, great. But if it's a small project that actually is, you know, an infill unit and it's this is the facade that faces a busy street or a park or something, and people would just take some time to watch this happen and like you said, like raise the mental health in the smallest ways, because that's what it it just takes a bunch of people to do this in very small ways. 
to really make a big difference, that would be absolutely incredible. And architecture absolutely has the power to do that in our communities, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, why why aren't we considering these things? And I think the way you say it actually is 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 very much the way I think about facades. And you know, we're all pedestrians in the city. We look at a building, I can enjoy it from the outside. So why can't we use that more as what what I what I propose as infrastructure for the city? And proactive proactive infrastructure. Proactive, yeah. right? Yeah. And so another project that I'm working on is with a larger team, a, a cross-disciplinary team, um, where we're really looking at that outside facade as a surface that should belong to the city and not just to the building or occupants on the inside. So why can't we use the facades as infrastructure for public health? And in this study, um, uh, for uh, smog and smog eating and smog reduction. And so, because we all know that no developer or owner in their right mind is going to spend extra money to try to clean smog around their building, um, we also have public policy people on our team. Um, we have preventive medicine people showing that it's actually going to improve the the lung health of a lot of pedestrians in the area, especially for the urban poor, and really start to think about how the surface or the liminal, the very outer surface of architecture should indeed belong to the city, not necessarily to the owners of that property. So where does that that fine property line actually occur and who's responsible for actually making that happen? It's kind of like a percentage of the building budget needs to go to public art in LA County, right? Like that's, and I'm, it's not just LA County, but it's all over the place. And there's there's this percentage where the, the the property developer does need to give back, right? To the larger community in that way. But this is taking it to another level. That's exactly, exactly the case, right? Because if there's no requirement or no incentive for the owner, they'll never do it, right? Why, why will they do it? But just like the arts, um, percentage and stuff like that is is what we're hoping to get to and how to position it that way. Yeah. Interesting strategy. I like it. So how how did this all happen? Like take us back to where did this begin? I, we don't have to get into every little step along the way. I think it's fascinating to see where it's come. I'm sure this is a hard fought battle to to even get this far. But how did how did you get started? Um I think a lot of people ask that question too. Everything from students to people out there. I mean to, to, to go further back, I actually was a biology major in college. So I never thought I was going to be an architect. I thought I was going to go to medical school. I uh, majored in biology. I was pre-med. And my advisor at school said, oh, it'd be really nice if, if you considered majoring in a non-science major, because it would probably look very different on your application to medical school. Hmm. And so at that time, I took kidney courses, and there's I just happened to be taking an architecture 101 course. And I thought, oh, yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It, seems, it doesn't seem that difficult. <laughs> what's, what's the big deal? Um, so then I started taking more architecture courses. I graduated. I waited on going to medical school. And so in in, in that time, I decided to get a job and I actually could draft because of some of the classes I took and uh, worked in an office. Um, they actually offered me a scholarship to go to graduate school. And I thought, wait, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Then I realized that I had a natural capacity to think spatially and materially at the same time. And so I went to graduate school. The good thing I think when I got there is I didn't have any preconceived ideas of what architecture should be. I didn't walk in thinking it's like, oh, well, I'm going to be an architect and and, and it's going to be this way. I walked in really questioning what is architecture, I mean, just for myself. 
So at that time, I thought that architecture should be an extension of the body and should be animated. Like, so a lot of my projects in, in grad school were about, I mean, moving systems and, you know, everything from moving buildings to um, dynamic surfaces and stuff. And it was kind of a crazy idea. It wasn't really, I have to say, well accepted at that time, um, but I still pursued the idea. Um, and so when I started practicing as an architect, and I did that for many years, I started also getting very concerned about climate change. So in about 2000, started reading all about it. And I'm thinking, looking around, why isn't anyone doing anything? And our field of architecture, it's like we keep making these static buildings again. So I thought, well, you know, I just started looking around at products that could be specified. And there were very few that could be specified that actually were dynamic or started to do these things. And so um, frustrated by that, in about 2007, I actually converted my architectural client-based practice into a research-based one um, and started pursuing grants and, and started looking at how to research and find ways to make this, those types of products. And the first area that I started looking at was in uh, smart materials because they were already dynamic. Um, and why couldn't we just use these smart materials? Um, so looking around quite a bit, I found this thermal bimetal, which was very familiar, at least familiar looking to architecture because um, that was already by the time Frank Gehry's already doing a whole bunch of metal type of buildings and surfaces that it wasn't so unfamiliar to people or how um, it was used. And so that's probably how I got started in the thermal bimetal area. Um, as I started moving forward, I realized it's also something that as a responsible architect, something that we could think of for everybody, right? How how do we do this? Um, because I I was really interested in some of the medicines, you know, and the research that's out in the field for remote areas. And it was so, so, I mean, it was so obvious to me that if we could design for things to go out to remote areas and around our world and it, to work, it will benefit us here in a fully developed, you mean, wealthy country. Instead of designing for here, to me, it was a matter of designing somewhere, you know, remotely. And I think that's what this idea of shading and you mean ventilating and you know, making things for the public is 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 part of how I think too, right? It's the thing that determined who it's for and why do it because I think in the end it'll just benefit everybody. It just seemed to be much more comprehensive thinking. It's interesting to think about this idea of the smart material and how it doesn't take infrastructure, you know, besides just whatever it takes to hold it up um, to activate it and to maintain it. And how that, because that is so simple in concept, that it can be applied absolutely anywhere, right? And typical building materials that get applied anywhere are the cheapest ones by by default. Like that's why Schindler in the 40s was dealing with stucco in building paper, right? Because he was trying to find the cheapest solution so that they could build more architecture, right? Trying to not just build for the the elites, right, who could afford architects with capital A architecture, right? But coming up with interesting ways to do architecture on a budget. And now like that, we talk about smart buildings and smart buildings are full of electronics and computers and sensors and gizmos and gadgets. And you're talking about something that is not that. It is it is something that kind of has a mind of its own, right? Because it's at the molecular level of the material itself is doing the thing caused by temperature swing and because buildings need to react to temperature swings like it, it just seems like this perfect marriage of of things and 
it was all I, as you were talking also like you talked about this journey of bimetal and metal is a widely accepted you know product that goes on lots of buildings all over the place i was thinking about that in kind of contrast to this carbon cleaning building facades like you couldn't have started there right you would <laughs> back especially back then and in, in the early 2000s it's like you would going way too far way too fast nobody would have been ready for that but with this kind of using this as a stepping stone to get to where you're talking about now is a really kind of obvious thing now i, I don't know if it was so obvious then did, did it feel like you were kind of risking a lot changing from a client base to a research-based practice and really diving deep into this particular category of building products? Um, it was, I think at that time it was a big risk, right? Because I had no idea where funding would come from. And I contributed a lot to my husband who was being very supportive, I think at that time, because, you know, we made an agreement saying that, you know, you just have to find enough funding to sustain your research. We're just not going to use any personal funds to do that. And so in some ways, it probably gave me purpose, like, of you know, really trying to get that money, because if I couldn't do it, I wouldn't survive. And to take that leap that way. Um, I was fortunate, though, that I was able to get some funding in the beginning, which really not only helped financially, but it was very encouraging, I think, um, academically, you know, I mean, as far as research, that it was actually important and, and interesting research, at least to some people. So that was a very big deal in the very beginning. Yeah, I could imagine. I, I I can only you know it's it's hard for people to start traditional practices, right? The risk involved in that, and finding clients, and getting projects, and follow the how long they take, and fees, and procurement, and like all this stuff. And then, but but to do something that is really different than that, right? Is I I would I would could just sense like what it must have felt like to say, "Yep, we're doing this," like for real, we're doing this. That had to be a a hard leap to make. But I think part of it was I did have uh, uh, experience in architecture. So I did understand the field and where the gap was there. Um, so in some ways, it's a more entrepreneurial way of operating that you see uh, that need or that problem or something that needs to be resolved. And then you go after resolving that. I, and and having been in this area and, and sadly, you know, although the, little by little it's increasing, I'm surprised that there are more people actually in this area and field. Um, it seems to be a very lonely place, but I think it's because it's not necessarily well-established as an idea or a method. So part of that is, you know, I, I, I uh, currently I'm the director of undergraduate programs at USC in the School of Architecture. And we are launching actually a new degree just based around this, about basically designing architectural products, right, on an entrepreneurial way. So it's not a client-based or client-supported system that is actually up front and building a business around it. And that new degree is a four-year degree. We call it the Bachelor of Science and sorry, Bachelor of Science in Architecture and Inventive Ten Technologies (BSAIT). Um, because I actually, again, truly believe that you know I I shouldn't be the only one out there. That we should have a hundred, you know, I mean companies out there, or, or you know, I mean hopefully even more. That's uh, feeding the product out there so that we can change the way the public actually thinks about architecture, uses architecture, and potentially even architects on how they um, design and implement some of the, the products. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. 
My friends, I've got a new chapter in the Avail story to tell you about, and that is the newly released version of Avail Desktop 4.3. The people behind Avail continually strive to make things easier for you. Easier to find the information you're looking for, easier to get it into your preferred application, and easier to store it in your preferred cloud storage locations. Let's face it, I think we can all agree that easier is better. But they didn't stop there. They also care about what your experience is like. So, as always, they've kept their focus on visuals with an eye toward design and ease of use. You're probably dying to hear the details of what's new. Well, who am I to get in the way? So let's get right to it. Avail Desktop 4.3 will now feel like your own custom app thanks to key cards. Key cards are data-driven and create zippy new visual ways of organizing your existing content. Think of them like pivot tables for your content. Join the Avail Desktop 4.3 party in BYOS or bring your own storage. Now you can store and deliver your content using Autodesk's BIM 360, Microsoft's OneDrive, Microsoft SharePoint, Google Drive, Dropbox, Ignite, and others. Avail's new Dynamic Paths feature also solves the problem of accessing content using desktop connectors like Autodesk Desktop Connector. Try it today. Either bug your admin to update your installation for all the new goodies, or if you aren't currently using Avail, go to getavail.com today to learn more. That's getavail.com. And now let's get back to our conversation. The whole topic of entrepreneurship in architecture school is an under-evaluated opportunity, I think, by most architecture schools. It's really encouraging to hear that you're doing that. That is an upcoming topic on this podcast um, with another entrepreneur-based architectural graduate who's really working on the homeless, not homeless, but the lack of housing and and what SB9 in California particularly is unlocking on kind of an architectural product front. So more to, more to come on that in, at some point soon. But this whole idea of offering a degree, I, I'm wondering what kind of demand there's going to be for that. Because architecture school for so long has been about getting you into like one of three slots. And usually one of those slots is much more prioritized over the other two, right? So design is kind of the top slot of what this education is preparing people to enter into the field. And then there's kind of the technical and the project management kind of tracks that exist in architecture. And this whole idea of going in, there there are so many other directions that graduates can go nowadays. It's really interesting for the school to say, yes, this is, and this is one we want to invest in, which is this entrepreneurship, especially around building materials, because when you were talking about this idea earlier of you moving from a client base to a research-based practice, I can only imagine that the research stuff that you were doing, for you at least, is directly applicable to projects. Like you, as an architect, you know, and that's an, an immediate differentiator for you as a practice, right? And there's so many firms out there who do not know how to differentiate themselves. Like they are literally offering the same commoditized services that everybody else is. And they're trying to do it in a particular market, which they feel sets them apart, but it kind of doesn't because they have direct competitors in schools or healthcare or or whatever. But when you start to apply material science to facades, like you're you're kind of like the one of 
you know, that in the category, like people will come directly to you to solve that problem because you're the expert in that. It seems like an immediate differentiator potential. So are students interested, attracted to this idea? Is it, is it a major? Is it a minor? Is it, do they get it in addition to, or is it, is this a replacement for a traditional architectural degree? Um, it's actually um, a major. Um, so it's a major that's brand new that we're starting within the School of Architecture. Like you say, I, I, you know, so much is left up to other people on the outside to make the products for architecture. Well, it takes millions of dollars, right? It, it's, it's, a, it's a big business for sure. Yeah, it's really yeah. big business, right? Both mm-hmm. ways. So not only is there investment in it, but I think the, the back end too, there's a lot of profit um, that could be gained from it. So how we can rely on other engineers outside of our field, manufacturing, all these other people designing products, but architects are not, right? And so how do we get into this game that we actually can determine the course of our own field is where, where I want to really think about. I do believe the students are really interested in it, especially, you know, I mean, given the climate of, of Google and, you know, Apple and all these big companies that are just, you know, startup companies that are just pushing product out there. Um, it's less about the academy and writing papers, but it's, it's this idea of first to market, right? And the scale of it could be anything from uh, urban furniture scale all the way up to prefab housing, right, as, as we see um, at any scale. And so these are all products at the architectural scale that nobody is necessarily focusing on, right? A lot of other um, schools or programs are looking at different apps you can use or your little household goods. And, you know, those are all great. All, and I think, you know, architects do um, participate in those things. but. What about this? You mean these products, and how can we even partner with these corporations and manufacturing and you know, commercial businesses in making these happen? So, I I I definitely think there's a lot that can happen. It is an undergraduate degree, which is I think the first of its kind. Um, there's you know I mean from what I understand, not any across the nation. And we are just starting it. We're going to have our first incoming class next year. I'll let you know how we do with our applicants. Getting back to your question on um, what's the interest out there. It's hard to know with some of the younger um, students. But certainly when we talk and we did market um, research um, amongst the architecture programs, um, amongst the profession and the offices out there, they're all thinking the same thing too, right? They are super eager to understand what the program is because they want to already hire our graduates and we haven't even met anyone in yet. Right. Right. Yeah. I can see that demand for sure. And I, I, I want to take this, I want to be a part of this degree. Like I, I, I love building things and I think architects should be solving the problems that they are the most familiar with. I mean, that to me is the inside track. It's like, I know that I need this thing to happen on, on the building. And especially if I can adapt it, like, parametrically to a site, to a location, to whatever the environmental conditions are. And and we know that we have technology that can drive those parameters, right? Like through Grasshopper and through Ladybug tools and things like that, where it's like, you can see how these, these, the tool chain starts to get set up, especially, you know, just using your bimetals as a, as a, as an example here. Right. But it seems like we know most intimately what those problems are that need to be solved. And then we just, what do we do? We, do we go to Google and start searching for that? And it's like, how do we know we're going to find anything? How do we know we're asking the right questions? 
how do we know we're talking to the right people? And, and that could take like just literally forever, right. To find that stuff. We don't know that it exists. We don't know who to talk to. And, and so to build it, start building a degree around that is fantastic, but to build a network around those kind of idea generation and getting the right, like you're saying, people already want to hire the graduates of this program that hasn't even started yet. There's part of the network. It already exists. Right. And then I'm sure there's building product manufacturers out there who want architects to drive their innovation. Right. And so you could start to see how this is create could create an ecosystem that is very beneficial to the entire profession and building industry. Exactly. That that is exactly true. Because you point out things that, you know, you just remind me is we, you know, one of our products is in manufacturing. And I thought very differently about what R and D in manufacturing is or should be. It's it's not as much research and development as one would think, right? And and they don't feel the need to do so too. Why change their their manufacturing method when it seems to work forever, like the last 50 years, you know, and making lots of money and no one seems to be demanding any change from it either. So I think even producing graduates that can really help with manufacturing, with construction processes even right? And trying to look at how you mean construction can be as, as a labor even commodified so that uh, you know, we could think of it quite differently. I, you know, I, I, I just, I, I, I'm not sure where it's going to go, to be honest, but I just feel like it's wide open, right? Again, you know, why are we letting large companies like Google develop our products when we should be doing it ourselves? Right. Right. Yeah. We see them, especially with IOT, right. Thermostats, uh, cameras, things like that, that are small scale, very product based, but you could imagine kind of these interfaces of the future where, how people interact with buildings being very different from an architectural standpoint, from an architectural scale and less of a product scale, but more from like an assembly and an, and an overall construct. I, I could see a, a very different future for that if architects are involved and if they're willing to get involved in that. If architects are involved, because when you Google smart house or smart home, the images that come up are just all the little gadgets, right? The thermostats, the doorbell, all these little gadgets you can buy for even the smart toilet, you know? But if you look at all the images, the wall, the floor, the ceilings, the you know construction materials, it's exactly the same as this has been for 50 years, right? There's nothing that's changing there. And why? I mean, why is that? It makes sense at one level, right? Because their their market is people who have a bunch of houses that have been around for that long, right? So I get it. But at the same time, like, how do we drive innovation in the built environment? It doesn't always mean it's got to be a new building, but it does need to, I think, start to address these larger scale issues, especially when it comes to climate change, right? And, and the environment, how can we apply those technologies, those big ideas to these existing structures in an architectural way, not just a gadget way, like not just taking out the doorbell and putting a camera there. Right. But it's like at a much different level than, than what we're talking, how we're seeing the tech companies address yeah, these issues. Completely different level, mm-hmm. completely different level. That's my hopes, right. Is to try to to make some leeway in that area. Um, we'll see. I'll let you know in a couple of years. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited to see where this goes. Like I said, like I, the, this to me would be a, a really exciting degree for people who think, 
I don't want to just like limit it to this, but but I think thinking thinking mechanically, thinking about how things go together, how they change over time. Like there's definitely kind of a class of architects who who already think like that, who take like the greenhouse idea and apply it to a building where it's got operable roofs and it's adjusting to climate and it's got some transparency and it's got some opacity and these things are kind of changing throughout the seasons or throughout the day. There's people who do They've thought about like like that for decades, right? But we just don't see it actually happen very often. And so that to me is what could be so exciting about products like this that can be applied to new buildings, to old buildings. It doesn't like it doesn't have to be a new building. I, I think that there's some exciting stuff there. So people who do think mechanically, people who th- who are thinking about assemblies and interfacing materials together and that how people interact with those things actually matters, right? to get back to your mental health comment, right? If, if people are in well-designed places, it changes their attitude, which changes how they go out into the community and act with other people. And, and all of that is kind of a rippling out effect beyond the property lines of the project itself, but enabled through the architecture. I think those are kind of these bigger picture things that are sitting in the very lowest levels of getting this right, you know, why we would, why we would want to go down this road. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly true. I mean, getting back to what you were saying a little earlier too, you know, we have a five-year PARC program. And if you think about a lot of these students are choosing to go into architecture when they're like 18, 17, 18, 19 years old. I mean, and the reality is how much do they really know about architecture at that time to know that they want to be architects? Um, so they get into our program and they're all, you know, very talented, really smart kids. And, you know, along the way, there's something going, well, I didn't know it was going to be like this, or I'm not really sure I want to be an architect, but they're already on this track that is really hard for them to get off of, right? Um, And so I feel sorry when I talk to some of them, they go, well, I only have one or two more years to go, right? And I'm thinking, wow, that's the way you think about it. And they've got sunk costs, right? Like they're thinking about it like that. And then they're stuck and then they have an architect and then they have to be an architect afterward, right? And all of a sudden they have to go get a job in the architecture firm and then they get licensed. And then next, you know, it's like, I never wanted to be an architect, right? Another be. miserable architect. Right, yes. right. Right. <laughs> so, so when I talk to a lot of these students, like, you know, some of them just sit there and I say, well, what do you want to do? What's your dream? What do you want to, you know? And someone say, I want to do set design. I want to do world building. I want to do, uh, you know, all these other things that, you know, when they, they look around them seem so exciting. And so uh, this is this was a little part of that too because it's like okay we have a lot of our graduates who don't become architects and some of them are are designing apps right one of them's designing an app for um, helping study for the licensure exam another you know me is now um, working and has a PhD on on you know using wood and the biological characteristics of of uh, the cell or cellulose in the wood. Um, as opposed to fighting it, why not use it as a benefit? Um, you know, all you know. When I start to look at these graduates that then moved away from architecture with the capital A, you start to think, wow, why? You know, I mean, they they could have really started thinking about this earlier, and and we could have helped them, as opposed to make them take structures and then you know, I mean, comprehensive design studio and all these yeah. other things. No, this is a huge issue, and I think this is like uh, I'm so glad that we actually got to this part of the topic totally unforeseen but the the idea that so so i talk to a lot of tech people on this podcast right people who have gone to the dark side in air quotes right and and it really feels like that for a lot of these people and it's a very i've done it myself it's a very 
difficult decision to make because there is some amount of shame associated with leaving capital A architecture, even though it's a completely legitimate path for the betterment of the profession of architecture. And so it, this is this is a really weird thing for people to deal with. And it's kept a lot of really smart people from doing their best for the profession and just accepting kind of the status quo fields of or tracks within an architectural kind of normal profession, right? And and you're talking about being proactive at the educational level to say, look, look, like if you're in architecture, the whole field, that's fantastic. Look how many ways there are to go. But I think for so long it's just been like, no, there's only this way. And if you're outside of that, you're you're an outsider. You're excluded. And and there's so many ways that we could include these people because they care so much about the profession. Yeah. I mean, and so exactly what you're saying, I, you know, I mean, in, in some ways I talk to these students, I go, well, look at me. I, you know, I mean, I walked away from architecture and, and, and I don't need my license, actually. It's funny that you say that, too, though, because I do keep my license just so that I can say I'm a you know, I mean, architect, which sadly I have not used my license for probably 20 years now. But but to show students, I was like, look, I I do this. I have fun with what I do. I enjoy it tremendously. I am contributing, I think, to our industry in in different ways, um, in areas that are you know, mean worthy and and meaningful. So that I'm hoping that students, other people out there, not even just students, other architects, other you know people in in peripheral fields, really start to think it's like you know, architectural products is a valid place. I mean, I'll add one more thing too. Um, and for me, I in early in early years, I tried to apply for. You know, I mean, large NSF type of grants. And there were two things that were problematic. One is I don't have a PhD. And so some of them required someone with a PhD um, to apply for it. And then looking around at these big grants, they don't have, you know, I mean, a lot of grants available for building technology. You know, there's not a lot of money out there that's going to help, you mean, propel building technology forward, even though Buildings, as you know, you know, eat forty percent of all energy. I was, I was just going to say that, like forty percent of carbon emissions. I mean, it's mind blowing that those grants don't exist. Yeah, it, the biggest impact. Yeah, you would think that the government should be putting a hell of a lot of money into improving our, you know, mean infrastructure of buildings, even incentivizing people to go down that path, right? Incentivizing, yeah. but there yeah. is so so little. So it was very very depressing to me that it's like, wow, I've gotten a lot of funding, but I've almost exhausted any architectural sources. Some of the people think it's interesting because I actually have I mean, gotten a lot of arts funding. And to me, that was another way to get money, right? In a resourceful way and to be able to get it without questions asked. You know, when you apply for engineering funds, they need to have every single line item down there and, <laughs> and justified everything. And you know, have every explanation for what you're spending money on. But the yeah, arts if you're going don't. through the engineering ones, like show us all the calcs, you go through the arts one and they're like, here's, here's my big idea. And that's all you need. Right. <laughs> exactly. Big ideas. Like, and right. I remember asking you too, I go, do you, do you need like receipts? And, and you know what I mean? Do you need at the end how all the money was actually spent? They goes, no, 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 it's fine. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> wow. That, you know, interesting. How, how to go about these things and to really think I, I also uh, want to change the um, government's um, interest in architecture and why funding for architecture becomes important. And by establishing an area of architectural products and technology, 
you know, I mean, a little by little and trying to chip away at that eventual hopeful change for DOE, for NSF, all those things. That idea alone, it just it just kind of changes the perspective on the benefit that it has to all of the population or all of society that that sits underneath the government versus the current model that almost everybody does is the VC funding model, right? Which is based on a few people getting a lot of profits out of that and not necessarily worried if it actually solves the climate crisis, right? It's like what what makes us the most amount of money in the shortest amount of time? Another company buys it, kills it, whatever. We don't care. I mean, obviously, some people are in this for the right reasons, right? The 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 more the, the higher level reasons, right? That but but a lot aren't. And for the government to basically by not addressing these issues through the kinds of grants and the funding that you're talking about, they're basically telling other people that you figure this out. And the VC group capital group is like, yeah, we'll do that. Right. Cause they see so much opportunity there. And um, I do think that they're, they're just leaving a lot on the table there and they're, they're showing that I guess it's just a lot of this isn't happening for the right reasons, right. For, for these things to really benefit all of us instead of just a few of us. That's exactly true. I mean, it, it really, I'm enjoying you know, hearing what you say because I, I feel like I'm getting the point across because sometimes I wonder, mm, right? You wonder. <laughs> um, I wonder, if, first of all, anyone's listening out there um, mm. and if if it's being heard and thought, you mean, in a, in a much more comprehensive way. I mean, I, th- there's just so much, there's so much to do. It's like what I say is this, this, this area and you know, how I feel is a little lonely. And it shouldn't be lonely. I feel like it's like it's such a it's a huge gap um, entrepreneurial that we we need to get more and more and more money, people, you know what I mean, effort, you know, companies, everything involved. It's um, fantastic to hear that, that you guys are doing that and, and being so proactive about it. I, I'm I'm rooting for USC. I'm rooting for you. This is fantastic. And to get back to the bimetal thing, I know this is a, an audio podcast. And so for people to see, I assume you've got a website, you've got YouTube videos. I want to put links to those in the show notes so that everybody can can see that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anything that you can send my way that, that everybody can take a look at, because I think seeing it is inspirational as well. And it really shows, it backs up everything that you've been talking about. Like you can see this path that you took to get to where you are, to be able to offer or create this, this now this degree that's going to go into, I can't remember all the letters that you said, but you know, the bachelor of science and innovation and and all those things. So it, it seems like, like what a fantastic path that that we're getting to kind of see the fruits of and now that's just going to blossom into how many more people can do the same thing and you're the model i mean that it's been a it's been a great conversation yeah no thank you very much i hope i hope more people get into it so mm-hmm. yeah all right well we'll leave it at that but send me links so those will be in the show notes where can people follow along with with what you are doing can they follow you on instagram on linkedin anywhere online to just kind of see see what you're up to instagram dosu studio on instagram i have a website uh dosu-arch.com um give me there's i guess facebook um they can go to the usc architecture website and look at the undergraduate degrees um, there's a bunch of places that you can look. Fantastic. Well, all of that will be in the show notes. Doris, thank you so much for sharing today. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you. 
Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.